You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here in September of 2022, with episode 426 of the Corbett Report podcast, Who Controls the News Controls the World. Now, that is a sentiment that I imagine my regular listeners will not need a great deal of elaboration in order to understand, at least in its general sense. But let's look at some interesting specific ways in which that dictum is true. I think some of the results may surprise you. So let's start by going to the desktop and looking at an interesting phenomenon that I discovered as I was browsing the mainstream, lamestream newswires for information about the death of Queen Elizabeth Beast. And you might have seen something like, for example, Fox 5 out of New York, World Mourns Queen Elizabeth II, <laughs> the electric boogaloo. Uh, condolences poured in from around the world Thursday after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, who became a global icon of calmness and fortitude through decades of political upheaval and social changes at home and abroad. Elizabeth, who had been on the throne since 1952 when the nation was still re rebuilding from the destruction of World War II, died Thursday afternoon at age 96 at Balmoral Castle, blah, blah, blah. In India, Prime Minister Modi called her a stalwart of our times, a wart of our times. Uh, she lived history, she made history, said Israeli President Isaac Herzog. President Biden was informed of her death by senior advisors during a meeting in the Oval Office. I like how there's no quote from Biden, <laughs> the dementia patient in chief. <laughs> it's just, he was informed. <laughs> what? What day is it? Anyway, uh, on and on. You know, you get the general gist of this. All right, so Fox 5 out of New York is covering the Queen's death that way. Well, let's turn to, say, ABC News, a completely different news organization, right? A stalwart. World mourns Britain's Queen Elizabeth II. Condolences poured in from around the world Thursday after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, who became a global icon of calmness and fortitude through de Hmm, I... I feel like I've seen this before. Wait, in India, once a Prime Minister Modi called her a stalwart of her times, she yeah, royalty from across... Da, da, da. Oh, well, we have some different quotes in here, but uh, President Joe Biden was informed of her death. Yeah, there, there's some oddly similar to what we were just reading on Fox 5. Well, how about if we turn over to Wiz10, an NBC affiliate? Again, a completely different news organization, right? A stalwart. World mourns Britain's Queen Elizabeth II. Condolences poured in from around the world after the death of Queen Elizabeth. Da, 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 for 96 at Balmora Castle in India, Prime Minister Modi called her a stalwart of our times. Blah, blah, blah. How about, I don't know, WLBT, a different NBC affiliate from a different part of the country. Uh, across the globe, the death of Queen Elizabeth prompted reflections. Oh, well, here we go. Completely different story, right? Oh, good. Finally, some slightly different wording to this story. But then we go to centralmain.com, which is apparently a thing. Um, a stalwart. World mourns Britain's queen. Condolences poured in from around the world. In India, Prime Minister Modi called her a stalwart of our times. Again, back to the same script. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, again, different outlet after different outlet reporting the exact, not just reporting the same story in the same way, literally the exact same wording. What on earth is going on here? How can this happen? 
Oh, I see. This isn't centralmain.com reporting. This is Associated Press. Or, uh, you know, we have the... Uh, this one is slightly different because it was actually written by Andrew Meldrum. But this one, again, the Associated Press. This one, the Associated Press. This one, uh, Associated Press. And who is Associated Press? Oh, right, AP News, of course. Yes, you do know about Associated Press and the Newswire services that NBC and Fox and ABC and all of these seemingly different outlets and and if you ever talk to a mainstream, good, right-thinking, liberal Democrat in the United States, they'll tell you that Fox News is the evil enemy and they only report lies, nothing but lies. And if you talk to a good, right-thinking, conservative Republican uh, in the United States, they'll tell you that NBC and ABC and all those three-letter alphabet, except for Fox, are all propaganda, and they report nothing but lies, but they're reporting literally the exact same thing word for word because they're just, uh, what was it called? Uh, rip and read? Whatever they call that in the industry. Of course, this isn't being written by Fox. It's not being written by NBC. It's written, being written by Associated Press. So who is AP, and where did they come from? This is not a rhetorical question. This is a question with a very real, identifiable, historical answer, and one that you would know if you were a student of my online course on mass media, a history, in which I talked about the history of the development of the Newswire services. All right, so what is the news, 1800s edition? We get the rise, of course, after the telegraph, we get the rise of these news agencies. And again, this is not something that was written in the stars. This is not something that was always there or always meant to be. It's Okay, people looked at that and looked at the uh, development of telegraphy and thought, okay, now we can transport large volumes of information across large distances. Well, how do we use this to our advantage? And so, of course, they set about commoditizing the idea of international news. So the first one to really take advantage of this was Agence Havas. Um, it was headed by someone named Havas. I forget his first name at the moment, but uh, Agence Havas eventually became AFP, Agence France Presse, which obviously still continues to this day. And you'll still, if you're, if you know, when you're reading a news article, sometimes you'll see via AFP or Agence France Presse or something like that at the top. Um, and uh, Agence Havas Presse, uh, sorry, Agence Havas pioneered the collection and dissemination of news as a commodity. So their idea is we'll take news, look, we've got agents in Paris and London and Berlin, whatever we, and they're all connected by telegraph. We can collect the news from Paris and send it to London instantaneously, essentially, at the speed of light. And we can get the information there so they can publish it in their newspapers. We'll make that our, our business. And we will collect this information. We'll write the little report. We'll send it over to them and they'll publish it in their newspapers so people will subscribe to them. It's a business model now, sending information uh, as news. And of course, since it was a profitable business, other people jumped into it fairly quickly. Um, one example is that Agence Havas had some employees, one named Paul Julius Reuter. Another was named Bernard Wolf. Uh, Reuter was in London. Wolf was in Berlin. And they both went and formed their own competitive agencies. I don't know if Wolf still exists or what form it still does, but obviously Reuters still exists and uh, to this very day. Um, also along those lines, the AP, the Associated Press, which started out as the New York Associated Press, comma, telegraphic agency, um, was founded in 1846 by five different New York dailies 
that were um, trying to share the cost of reporting the Mexican-American War. Basically, of course, I mean, each newspaper, I guess, could send a correspondent or something like that. But that seems, oh, no, we've got this telegraph. We'll get someone over there to be our agent and they'll send the news to us. And hey, we can do that in a lot of different places. Let's start this telegraphic agency. So that was the origins of it. And I will note again, another on the playing on the media conspiracy theme. There was a conspiracy of sorts, an investigation in 1892 by Victor Lawson, who was the editor and publisher of the Chicago Daily News revealed that several principals of the NYAP, the New York Associated Press, had entered into a secret agreement with United Press, a rival organization to share NYAP news and the profits of reselling, which was a big scandal at the time, and I think eventually resulted in the dropping of NYAP and it became AP. But anyway, as you know, AP is still around to this day, and still the same idea. They're collecting information at these various parts, and then they're homogenizing it and sending it out and people will publish that sometimes word for word sometimes they might um, add to that reporting but the idea is it's it's a centralized decentralized decentralized activity if that makes sense there are there is a central organization that is collecting from many different nodes on this network and then sending it out to others who subscribe to them that's right. You would know all about that history if you were a student of my online course on mass media. And if you are not a student, why not? It is, I think, worth your time and attention. Six hours of lecture on a deep dive into the real history of how news has been made and who makes it and in what way and for what purposes. There's a lot of material in there. Anyway, if you want the preview of the course and the course notes, you can go to corporatereport.com slash massmedia, or you can go directly to newworldnextweek.com to purchase the course, in which you will find out such tidbits as, of course, the newswires were, in some sense, perhaps the perfectly predictable result of the electrification of news that came with the advent of telegraphy. Because once you have telegraphs in place that are capable of sending information around through wires at the speed of light, it is suddenly feasible to have uh, the idea of international same-day news. You don't have to wait for horses and buggies and ships and things to carry news from one place to another. You can have it instantaneously. You could be reading about what happened yesterday in Paris, sitting in London. Uh, or Berlin, or wherever. It's oh, what an inter interconnected world in which we're living in these heady days of the 19th century. And that's, of course, exactly what took place. And as I say, it makes a lot of business sense from a certain perspective. The Associated Press likes to brag that it has been covering election uh, the election results in the United States since 1848. The first Presidential, U.S. presidential election that was held on a single day, the entire nation voting on one single day, and the results were collected and tallied, and the prediction the we're calling the election for... Who won the 1840? Anyway, <laughs> we're calling the election uh, on the, based on these results, and the AP collected all of that information and got it out to the masses so that it could go to the members of its, uh, the subscribers to its newswire service, the various newspapers that were subscribing to its service. It was a big thing, and they, they put out a lot of money, a thousand dollars they spent to cover the 1848 election, which back in the day was a lot of money. So that 
again, it, it, it obviously made sense for them. It was a good business um, investment for them. But as I go on to elaborate, just right after that clip that we just saw from the online history course, as I go on to elaborate, of course, this brings with it certain, certain uh, structural sort of changes to the, the, the process of news making, because that is what is going on. Of course, as I've talked about before, the, the making of the news, the determining of what is news and what it will be reported and how it will be reported. Uh, it, it, by necessity, in this increasingly capital-intensive environment of telegraphy and other cost-prohibitive ways of collecting and distributing information from far and wide to far and wide, uh, that becomes something that of necessity is going to be in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And suddenly, instead of people passing information around between each other, now it's news organizations that have agents and representatives in offices in certain uh, capital cities around Europe or across in North America or what have you. And now these people are determining what what is the news in Paris today? What is the news in Baltimore today? What is the news in Calgary today? And these people decide and then they write their script and it gets sent out and read by people all over the world. Like, for example, the world mourned Queen Elizabeth and Prime Minister Modi said she was a stalwart of our times, blah, blah, blah. That becomes literally the, the primary way that people discover information about what is happening in the world, no matter what outlet you are turning to in what part of the world. If you're in the English-speaking world, you're probably reading something very similar from one of these newswires. Now, as I say, this makes a certain amount of economic business sense, the business of news, as it started to become, really, in the 19th century, with the advent of such things as newswires and, and daily uh, circulating newspapers and the, the circulation battles that began to take place. As the, as the industry of news as we know it began to take shape through the advent of these technologies, they it does make a certain amount of business sense to consolidate these into, okay, well, now we'll have offices around here and here and here, and we'll collect this, and we'll make news into a product that we will then sell to our subscribers, the newspapers, who will then print that information. They'll rip and read and print whatever we say. Now, that might make business sense. And on that level, you might say, well, it's not much of a conspiracy, really. It's just the way the news operates, right? If that's so, then why are clips like this one, which you will remember from my Media Matrix documentary, why are they so inherently creepy? Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories 
without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same stories simply aren't true without checking facts first. Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. And this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 This is dangerous to our democracy. <laughs> yes, as you have probably seen, because that clip did go viral in recent years, that's an example of the exact type of phenomenon that we're identifying here today. This case, in this case, it was a Sinclair broadcasting message that was pumped out through all of the network affiliates of this Sinclair broadcasting network, all saying the exact same words in the exact same order, sometimes in the creepily exact same cadence, sometimes with that local twist to it of, oh, that zany, lovable local reporter of ours. And that is one of, I think, the creepy aspects of this, is that the way that the mass media functions is by providing us, again, as you would know from the Media Matrix documentary, where I did play that clip, the simulacrum of human relationship. Because as humans, we are usually wired for natural human social clues and contexts and relationships so that when we see someone day after day and hear their voice day after day and we th we think we get to know them a little and then they start telling us things that are of importance and that maybe do have relevance to our lives and they do feed us the news day after day. We feel like we know these people. They're our TV friend. Of course, consciously, if we ever stop to think about it, of course, we know that these are people in $1,000 suits in front of futuristic blue screen news sets talking stuff that's going on the teleprompter. We, we know that this is not reality, but our subconscious minds do not perceive that fact. They see our TV friend telling us what happened today and extemporaneously coming up with this speech about the danger to our democracy. That's one of the creepy aspects of this, is that it functions fundamentally at a subconscious level, which, try as you might, unless you are constantly keeping in mind, consciously, that these are information operatives in an information war that is being directed against your psyche, and unless you always have your guard up for that, and even then, things can slip through the defenses. So, I think that's one of the things that we immediately recoil at when we see it put like that. And as I say, you've probably seen, if not that clip, there are other clips like that that have been put together. I noted several years ago, Conan, Conan O'Brien did one. I can't remember if it was when he was on The Tonight Show or maybe when he went to TBS, but he did one of those types of compilations and it got 
a lot of attention at the time, and a lot of people were, what's going on? Even in the conspiracy subreddit at the time, I remember people going, look, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> and my uh, reaction to seeing that that type of compilation for the first time was, is this a surprise to anyone? Does anyone not know this is how the news functions? Of course. Do you think not only is not the news reader not personally coming up with it off the top of their head, not only are they just reading something that they themselves typed up <laughs> before coming on air, not only is it not something that someone in their office typed up, it's just the local guy coming up with this script. No, of course, this is coming from a central location. It's being fed out to network affiliates who are reading it as if it's the local news and they might put a local spin on things and make a local reference so you think that this is local, when it is not. Of course, not every news story is like this, but a lot of them are. So it was it was no surprise to me. What was surprising to me was the reaction of people out there, as if this was some sort of great revelation, which showed me that, oh, people really are not as media literate as they need to be in this information war that is being waged against them. And make no mistake, that is the deeper deeper layer of this. It isn't just an ickiness factor. It's kind of weird to see all those people saying the same thing. It's much, much worse than that, really. It's not It's not just icky. It's actually information warfare. And for what purpose? To what end? It is self-evidently true that knowledge and information is power and the ability to control what information people receive, how they receive it, the exact words that are used to convey that information is the ultimate power over society. Sticks and stones can break bones, bombs can blow people up, but words and information can control people's minds, thereby controlling their actions, thereby, to a large extent, controlling and delimiting their entire life. That is the ultimate power over society that has been centralized in the hands of the mass media barons over the past couple of centuries of the electrification of media technology. And that is what is at stake. That is what I've been trying to belabor in my Mass Media History online course, the Media Matrix series, the follow-up episodes that I'm doing here. This is a really, really, really fundamental point and one that I hope is not lost on my audience. And we can talk about it in big, vague, general terms like that. Let's look at a very specific instance to see how this functions, not in the dim depths of bygone history, but in very recent history that will no doubt be relevant to my audience, and which I imagine most of my audience will have direct personal experience of. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this article that appeared on AE911truth.org on September 8th, 2022, under the headline, The Triumph of the Official Narrative, How the TV Networks Hid the Twin Towers Explosive Demolition on 9-11. And this scholarly article was put together by former Corbett Report guest and, uh, and an author who I would recommend people become familiar with, Gray McQueen, and his co-author here, Ted Walter. And in introducing this article, they write, this article is the second installment of a two-part research project we began in July 2020 with the article, How 36 Reporters Brought Us the Twin Towers Explosive Demolition on 9-11. In that article, our goal was to determine the prevalence among television reporters on 9-11 of the hypothesis that explosions had brought down the Twin Towers. Through careful review of approximately 70 hours of news coverage on 11 different channels, we found that the explosion hypothesis was not only common among reporters, but was, in fact, the dominant hypothesis. Our second question, which we set aside for the present article, was to determine how, despite its prevalence, 
the explosion hypothesis was supplanted by the hypothesis of fire-induced collapse. In this article, we shall concentrate not on reporters in the field, as in part one, but on the news anchors and their guests who were tasked with discovering and making sense of what was happening. As we trace the supplanting of the explosion hypothesis with the fire-induced collapse hypothesis, we witness the great shift toward what quickly became the official narrative. And so, their argument rests essentially on this, uh, this uh, identification of a strategy, two stratagems, that were employed on the morning of 9-11. Uh, our argument is that two strategies were employed to accomplish the triumph of the official narrative. A, where news anchors were sincerely dedicated to discovering the facts of the situation, strategy one was employed. This strategy involved directly confronting the news anchor of the relevant network with an expert who would explain that the destruction of the Twin Towers was caused by structural failure induced by the airplane impact and the ensuing fires. And B, strategy two was used on all networks, regardless of the stance of the news anchors. This strategy involved developing two related narratives, two engaging, emotionally charged stories that appeared to explain the day's horrors and offered viewers a set of active responses. The first of these two stories is what we shall call the War on Terror narrative. This grand narrative, resonant with older storied events, like a new Pearl Harbor, explained how the righteous, the civilized, the United States had been subjected to an act of war from the evil, the uncivilized, the terrorists, supported by nations in the Middle East and Central Asia, and how American leaders must respond to this aggression with an initiative that was warlike on many levels. And the second story is the Bin Laden narrative, which nested within the wider War on Terror narrative and was used to transform myth into plausible history. According to this narrative, an evil Saudi national based in Afghanistan had masterminded the attacks. And they go on, again, this is a scholarly article, they go on to, to uh, talk about their how they did this, the 70 hours of continuous news coverage on the day of 9-11 from 11 different networks that they looked at. They, they list here what networks they looked at, what times um, they, they watched, and then they Categorize. So they, they take the explosion uh, explosive hypothesis mentions on each network, as well as ambiguous explosive hypothesis mentions, things that could be interpreted as implying that there were explosions um, going off and that contributed to the collapses. Um, and they, they number them. They also determine by time frame where these mentions happen. So it, within each time, and obviously noting 42 in the first half hour, and going down to two by the last half hour of this news coverage that they watched. So, uh, they conclude the explosion hypothesis was mentioned 70 times across all 11 channels. And to our great interest, we found that news anchors or guest experts on every channel, with the exception of Fox News, asterisk, let's come back to that, at some point in the day believed, considered, or at least articulated the possibility that explosions had caused the Twin Towers' destruction. And so they note the very first mention that they could find was 9.59 a.m. after uh, within minutes of the South Tower's destruction. And the last mention was by Tom Brokaw on NBC at 4.48 p.m. Again, within the time frame of the, uh, of, of the hours that they looked at on the day of 9-11. And they do note further with regards to Fox News, the one notable exception was on Fox News where the anchor John Scott assertively pushed the fire-induced collapse hypothesis while fabricating the war on terror and bin Laden narratives before our eyes. All the while, 
He seemed uniquely unsurprised and unbothered by the events, as compared to other anchors who exhibited varying degrees of shock, disbelief, and horror. And yes, again, my my regular audience will already know that, because you will remember from the False Flags, the Secret History of Al-Qaeda documentary, both part two and part three, I showed it twice because I think it's an important clip, literally within seconds of the second strike on the second tower, John Scott was there saying, we don't know at this point what it could be. It could be Osama bin Laden. Who knows what? Within seconds, he was already raising the specter. Well, this is clearly Osama bin Laden. Look, you all saw that plane go into the building. Therefore, uh, so that is an interesting um, thing to note from this study. And it is quite a study. They go on in a great degree of detail, looking at clip after clip. These are just the ones they're highlighting, essentially, in this. As they say, they've found 70 mentions, but they're going through and showing clips and um, noting exactly what was said and by whom and in what context at what time, and then how that narrative started to sh- take shape and then shift towards the war on terror narrative. Um, it's all documented here. So I will suggest wholeheartedly, as usual, please go to the show notes for this uh, edition of questions uh, of the podcast. Sorry, what, what are we doing today? And uh, follow the link in the show notes so you can read through this article for yourself. I, I think it is worth your time if you are interested in this endeavor, but let's cut to the chase in the conclusion. Uh, Gray McQueen and Ted Walter conclude, on 9-11, television was used to evoke shock and confusion in U.S. citizens, and in citizens around the world by transmitting the horrific images of the day. No words, no analysis can compete with the images of the airplane strikes, the disintegrating towers, and the shocked reactions of people on the scene. To study the day's events as they unfolded on television is to experience in a shockingly direct way how a well-oiled propaganda system, of which television is a central component, I would say, certainly, and 2001, what I identify as the zenith of television, everyone was glued to television that day, can spin grand and lethal yarns that silence the citizens who experience, who witness, who suffer, and who constitute the epistemic backbone of democracy. Oftentimes, researchers, engineers, scientists, academics, etc., carry on their research as if they were merely studying the natural world, a world that has no interest in the researchers and does not look back at them. But in cases such as 9-11, researchers are working with an intellectual context shaped by an intelligent opponent. This opponent is neither inert nor disinterested, but looks back at the researcher it has intentionally laid down sets of false claims and dead-end trails and can be expected to continue to do so. Excellent. Very well said. I probably could not have said that better myself. That is exactly what we are looking at here, is 9-11 as media event, as constructed, scripted media event, not in the sense of the Sinclair broadcasting script, but in the sense that all of the anchors, all of the reporters were being subtly pushed in a certain direction until they all converged by the end of the day on the fire-induced hypothesis, of course. We all saw it. Even after they've 70 times mentioned the explosions and explosive hypothesis. So it's an interesting case study in how this works. And there is actually a lot more to be said specifically on the connection between 
terrorism and media that I absolutely will go into in more detail in a future edition of this podcast. But as I say, please do read through this article. They also have an appendix where they go through all of the all of these different clips and mentions and things. It's it's truly quite a comprehensive article. I highly recommend it for people who are interested in this subject. But I hope I've demonstrated why this subject is is there, why it is important, how it matters, how it manifests, how it can be used as a weapon against the population to control that population's perceptions in the interest of a certain objective, in the interest of getting the population on board with a certain agenda. We saw it happen on TV in 2001. I was there. I remember it. I saw it happening too. I'm sure most of the people in my audience, except those too young to remember, also have similar memories of what happened in those chaotic, traumatizing hours, days, and weeks after the explosive events of that day. Right? Right. So that's a very specific example from our very recent and very uh, uh, raw history that I'm sure we all have experience with. But of course, this is a this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on a long time. As, again, my audience will know from, if nothing else, then episode 350 of this podcast on History is Written by the Winners, where I went through many more very specific examples of how news media and education systems and other points of information control were wielded as weapons to get the public on board with war agenda, to cover up the the real history of that war after the fact. I went through, specifically in the context of that episode, I was looking at World War I history because I had just completed the World War I conspiracy documentary. So that was fresh in my mind and I had lots of examples to hand. But as you see, it's not just World War I. It's not just old, dry, dusty history. It's 9-11 and, of course, the COVID scandemic and all of the other major traumatizing events that you can think of from recent history and even more distant history. This is an important issue. And there's a lot more to be said about the way that information is used to control society. Because if you control the information that we have about about history, about what happened, then you can control the past. And if you control the past, then you control what people are doing, saying, and thinking in the present. And if you control that, then you control the future. Hmm. Where have I heard that formulation before? Well, I'll leave you to dig up that reference, but I don't know. All I really got out of today's episode was that Queen Elizabeth was a stalwart of our times, and this is an extreme danger to our democracy, or something like that. Where did I get those ideas? I don't remember. Anyway, that's the takeaway for today, right? Okay, as I say, there's a lot more to be said on these topics, and I will be talking about this more in the future, because there are specific ways that we can look at, because obviously the next question is, how do we arm and defend ourselves against these attacks on our psyche, essentially, by uh, in this information warfare that is taking place every single day and being waged on us by these media figures. That's an incredibly important question, and it involves dissecting more of the specifics of how they accomplish what they do. Again, there will be more dissection of this in the future, but I hope I have laid the groundwork for that today by stating what I think we all know to be true, but now we can actually identify and talk about it in greater detail. Who controls the news controls the world. 
Having said all of that, once again, I will direct you to the show notes for today's edition of the Corbett Report podcast at CorbettReport.com, where you can find all the links to everything that I've been talking about today. And we're going to leave it there for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.